Brothers and sisters, thank you for coming. As I understand it, these are talks that will help us think about, among other things, our preparation for the Holy Week and our own relationship with the Paschal Mystery of Jesus. And the topic that was assigned to me or that we agreed on is, did Jesus know us on the cross, understanding the knowledge and love of Christ crucified? So what I hope to do just for the next 20 minutes or so is talk to you a little bit about this very deep mystery about the, the knowledge and love of our Lord in the event of his crucifixion. And I'll hopefully open the floor a little bit for questions. So where I want to start with are some, these are very simple, common places of the Catholic Church for thinking about this mystery. If we wish to understand the mystery of the cross, we do well to look to the saints, their contemplation of the mystery and their teaching. They are in a certain way expressions, living expressions of the reception of scripture. What does it mean for the mystery of Christ to permeate our minds and hearts and for the tradition, the handing on of the truth, to be present in us in such a way that you might say it inspires us in our whole being? Well, we see that when we look at the saints and the way they talk about the mystery of the crucifixion of Jesus, what they perceive of that mystery. And though they don't always agree exactly, we have a kind of, you might say, set of family resemblances. You might say the saints are the family of the cross gathered around Christ on Golgotha who contemplate, who stare into his mystery and invite us to acquire a common mind about what his mystery is. Now we might say this is just a little stab at a definition of something we live, something that overshadows us, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus. We might take a stab at a definition by saying the cross is at base a mystery about the stability of love and the revelation of the truth of that love in the darkest night of human existence. In a certain sense, there is nothing so stable in the world as the cross. We have that wonderful saying of the monks of the Carthusian tradition, the world turns, the cross remains the same. And the church teaches us that in a certain way, you might say the inviolable <coughs> certitude of the stability of the love of God and the truth of that love is manifest expressly and most intensely in the crucifixion of Jesus. We can touch, as it were, the stability of the Father. Christ is crucified in the stability of the Father. And in that stability of the Father's love and truth from the cross, he speaks. He's the word who speaks forth the truth of the I am of God. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. The I am of the Lord, the eternal mystery of God, is manifest in the cross. Now, another word of preface remarks is that we could turn here to Julian of Norwich's claim that in the crucifixion event, the worst possible thing has happened. The worst thing that might have happened has happened. We, the human race, have killed God in his human nature, separating his human body from his human soul, subjecting him to suffering and derision. And from this worst thing that could happen, the greatest possible thing that can happen has come about, that God has raised the dead and offered us eternal life. So the worst thing that we could do, we've done it. And the greatest thing God could do, he's done it. And these two things have occurred in congruity with each other through and in and through the same event. 
Now, St. Thomas himself, Aquinas, when he thinks about the mystery of the cross, says that it is many things. It is an illumination to the world of the truth identity of God. I started kind of with that idea. He also talks about it as an example of the perfection of charity. That Jesus is, as it were, the new Adam on the new tree of life, teaching us how to live as well-ordered lives, subject in our souls to God, even in a way subject in our bodies to our souls, in a new configuration of fallen humanity, now taken anew up into an order of, of exemplary life with God. Jesus is the teacher. He teaches us how to live from the cross. Also, Aquinas says, the cross is atonement for our sins. That's an English word that Aquinas doesn't use. He uses the word satisfactio from Anselm to make reparation is probably the best literal translation. Atonement is the English word that means literally at one to make us reconciled with another. So Christ makes reparation for human sins and atones by uniting us with God. He also talks about the cross as the victory of God over evil. God is triumphant in the mystery of the cross, so that even that worst circumstance is an occasion for God to show his almighty power. He who can move the sun and the stars, he can cover up the sun with an eclipse of the moon, can also, in the littleness of his human nature, subject to suffering, save the good thief, crack open the vaults of the dead, crack open, rip in half the, the, the veil separating Jew and Gentile, and, and communicate the forgiveness of sins effectively to the world. So there's a sort of sign of power and victory, even in the cross. And lastly, more sometimes sensibly to modern people, but not to be taken exclusion, but so totally true, it's God's, it's, a, it's just for Aquinas, a sign of God's solidarity with us. God has become human and been subject to the things that we are subject to, to show us in a way his intensive love, his presence, even in the mystery of our own limitations and sufferings. Now I want to pivot from here to focus in a little bit, in the light of that larger background, on the knowledge of Christ as man in the crucifixion. Now, of course, we teach and hold rightly based on Scripture and the words of our Lord himself that Christ is true God and true man. And as God, he's the eternal Son and Word, and he knows all things. Peter says this in confessing, Lord, we know you know, I know you know all things. You know I love you. John 22. So as God, Christ remains, you might say, perfectly uh, indiminished on the cross and knows all things as God. So I'm not talking about that. His divine knowledge is perfect. I'm talking about his human knowledge and his human love. And what I want to talk about when I talk about his knowledge on the cross is to focus on two aspects. First, his experience of suffering and dereliction. He knows what it is to suffer. He, he actually suffers more intensively from his knowledge. He experiences even a dereliction of the soul. My God, why have you abandoned me? And also conversely, seemingly paradoxically, he also has a deep awareness of the Father and of his active victory over sin, death, and the devil for each of us, which gives him consolation and peace of the most profound kind. So let's talk about these two aspects. First, on the suffering side of his knowledge. Christ knows what it is to suffer bodily. Of course, he has bodily suffering. He experiences the excruciating pains of the crucifixion. He also suffers emotionally. 
from his rejection by his people, from the weight of human sin that he knows something of intellectually, from his rejection by, by, from his uh, forsaking by his apostles for the suffering of his mother. But he also suffers spiritually by knowledge and love. And Aquinas actually says, he intimates in question 48, article 6, in the third part, article, response 4, that this is the deepest suffering of Christ. Jesus has a perfect knowledge of human sinfulness without himself sinning. This is because of his beatific vision, and in a way maybe more especially because of his his, um, so-called habitual knowledge, his prophetic awareness. Just as we see Jesus being able to read souls in the Gospels, there's so many references to it. If you took them all out, what would be left of the Gospels? Well, they'd be a lot thinner. So it's clearly a teaching of the church, a teaching of the apostolic age, that Jesus could, as it were, read souls. He knew a lot of things without having to investigate them empirically. So that's a special prophetic knowledge. And he had it habitually, so he could avert to it. But on the cross, that knows a profound extension. Christ can see into, as it were, the mystery of iniquity. He knows who he's giving his life for. And Aquinas holds, I think, rightly, that he, he can see in the, in the heights of his intellect by intuition in the beatific vision. He knows us. He knows those for whom he offers his life. St. Paul says, um, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. And that suggests that the knowing me is personal. I mean, it's a way of reading Paul. It's a dispute. But... He knew me at the cross. How real is that? How singular is that? It, it, it could be that because of his beatific vision and his infused prophetic knowledge, that's very singular in some higher intuitive way. Not in a discursive, rational way, not in an imaginary, phantasmal way, but in a higher intuitive way. The Lord sees the mystery of the whole of humanity in the church. And he knew me, he gave his life for me in the mystery of the redemption. But that also means he suffered, not only for me, but from me. He suffered because he sees the drama of human sin in every human heart. He sees the defects and imperfections of love. He also sees the, uh, he sees the possibility of betrayal and catastrophic uh, severance from God, eternal loss. So Aquinas says the mourning, the spiritual suffering and mourning of the spiritual heart of Christ stems from that knowledge, but also, especially, from the perfection of his love. Because when a person who's very holy uh, sees sin, he mourns. And Aquinas calls that contrition of heart. Contrition not for my own sins, but contrition for the sins of another. He says, in Christ was the wellspring of the most intense and painful contrition that has ever existed in a human heart at the cross. Because he sees the sins of the human race and he grieves. And that grief is salvific for us. It's a grief that comes out of the wellsprings, the depths of his love for the human race. The sacred heart of Jesus mourns sin and embraces sinners with the response of obedience and love for the Father and for us. But he enters fully into, you might say, the dark night of our sins. That's the way I understand the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The father, in a certain sense, abandons the son to humanly experience the mystery of iniquity. Not in the sense that he undergoes damnation or he undergoes severance from God. I disagree with John Calvin about that and with Karl Barth and even with our you know, very cultured and dear theological friend Hans Erzman Balthasar. But this is an interesting question. It seems to me better to say the Lord is luminous on Calvary, but the light hurts the eyes. 
The light shows him the iniquities of the world, and it spurns love, but it's a love that grieves. Okay, so that seems to me the heart of the nexus of the... And then in that, he enters into confrontation with evil and iniquity. My God, why have you abandoned me? It is a psalm prayer. It does express hope, because in the psalm prayer is the last ending of the psalm, which signifies the reconciliation of the sufferer with God. So it's a way of scripturally, you might say, offering the suffering to God through psalmody. But I think that the offering is truly also agonizing. And there is an abyss of confrontation with the mystery of evil because of the precious light of the knowledge of Christ's mind, his wisdom, and the depths of his charity. Let me turn then to the second aspect, which is... um, his um, awareness of the Father and the consolation of his soul. In, if you read question 46 in the Tertia of Pars, it's, it's obviously Aquinas' style, but it's not bad brief meditation for Holy Week. He looks at the way that God could, Christ could at one time as man suffer acutely in his soul because of his physical pains, his, his uh, emotional suffering, and his spiritual pain that we just talked about, and feels consolation in his whole soul. Consolation that even in some way affects his senses, his body, his emotional life. That comes from his understanding of God. Of Now, of course, Christ is God. But I'm talking about his human awareness of himself, of his Father, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Aquinas holds that Christ did not live in faith. He didn't believe he was God. He knew he was God by a kind of higher intuition that we call immediate knowledge or the beatific vision. It's true, however, that when you use the word beatific vision with Aquinas, you need to be a little careful because he believes the scope or effect of the beatific vision in the heights of the soul of Christ during his earthly life was limited in its effect. He calls this a dispensatio, an economic dispensation, and says that during the course of his human life, Christ has the perfection of knowledge of God in the beatific vision so that he can communicate salvation to us so that he can conduct himself as the emissary of the Father and humanly signify the truth of his own divine life and of what he holds in common with Father the Son, with Father the Spirit. And he has the beatific vision in order to be our Savior, to communicate to us what he has. But he says it's only beatific in some respects. He says it, heightened, it, it enlightens and consoles him in what he calls the higher intellect, uh, upper reaches of the mind when it turns to the Father, and to his own divinity, and to the Holy Spirit. So that knowing himself, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, knowing, as it were, the mystery of God's own identity, his own identity as the Lord, Jesus is filled with consolation, and peace, and a rightly ordered view of all things. But he says, when it comes to seeing what he calls lower reason, the consideration of creatures, the consideration of the sins of men, the consideration of our fallen condition, and everything to do with the psychology, the sensate psychology, and the physical effects that he says in the dispensatio, in the dispensation, the beatific vision does not effectuate any change, or it does not alter Jesus' normal human condition. So what Aquinas is saying is, when Christ as man in his human life looks at the Father, he knows that he is the eternal Son of the Father. He is consoled by his union with the Father. I am the Father of one. When he looks at us, and he looks at the suffering of the human race, he not only can suffer deeply, intellectually and spiritually, he 
also can have vivid emotional and physical suffering from all that he undergoes. And there's no, as it were, um, whitewashing of this or eradication of this due to the grace of his human intellect. So Jesus is a true and real profound sufferer. And at the same time, he has this deep awareness of the unity he has with the Father. So those two things can coexist, the suffering and the consolation. When he looks to the Father, he's consoled. When he looks to us and we looks to the suffering, we experience the suffering, he's in his body, in his emotion, life, and his friendships, he suffers. Now, Aquinas says then that because of the beatific vision or the immediate vision of God, Christ crucified possesses a kind of deep awareness of his unbreakable union with the Father. I am not alone, but the Father is with me. That's like John 12. When he's, cru- he's predicting his crucifixion. I will not be alone. The Father is with me. And I and the Father are one. That stability of the divine being, of the truth of God's eternal reign of love and wisdom, is something Christ is humanly not just aware of. It's something he perceives. He lives. He knows intuitively, even as he suffers. He therefore also sees the assurance of his victory over sin, death, and the devil, and our redemption. Jesus is consoled in the cross to know he is effectively rendering us free from sin and saving us. And so that's consoling to the heart of Christ. The fact that he has accomplished his mission, that he's bringing all things to fulfillment. You see it events in John 20, in those, or I think 19, in those great words of peace. All things are accomplished. There's that kind of magnanimous passivity, passivity, passivity you know, how you say, uh, pacificness or peacefulness of the soul of Christ crucified, who can in a certain way regally denominate that he has achieved the whole of Scripture, the whole of the redemption of the human race. It is fulfilled. The whole of Scripture is fulfilled. The whole mystery of God's reconciliation of humanity to himself is fulfilled. That peace is inundating the soul of Christ, even as he experiences true agony. So the scriptures itself show us this juxtaposition, this intercombination. And then the lives of the saints give us different ways of thinking about this. Because it's interesting. Catherine of Siena prayed to experience union with the crucifixion. And you know that the wounds never appeared in her life. But on her deathbed, her cadaver showed forth the stigmata miraculously. She lived with the cross in her. And she experienced great suffering and died at 33 years old. What did Catherine say was the part, the, the experience of Christ crucified par excellence? Joy. She said Christ crucified is experiencing joy because of the union he has with the Father through the knowledge he has of the Father and the perfection of love. The, the vibrancy of the charity of the heart of Christ unites him with the Father. And he has that stability in his human heart, not just his divine identity, but in his human heart he has that stability of possessing the truth of being one with the Father in love. That union grounds him and he's joyful. Okay. But then you have like John the Cross, and John the Cross talks very beautifully about the terrible night of ascetic uh, dryness of Christ crucified in his passions and his emotions, having no consolation and no way to, nowhere to rest except in the love of the Father and the knowledge of the Father. That kind of, in, it's not stoic, but it's a kind of, um, it's an emphasis on Christ's enduring 
knowledge and love stabilizing him in and through a dark night of the soul, a dark night of the senses, without any human consolation. Now, Catherine and John of the Cross, in a way, are kind of like, you know, sides of, 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 of uh, appreciation. And Aquinas gives you a way to talk about both of them, both the joy and peace of the soul of Christ. And, you know, that's typically why he's useful. He, t- he tends to give you a very balanced view. Um, I don't, I mean, obviously, I believe in special pleading for Aquinas, but I think it's helpful to think that we don't need to oppose these viewpoints to each other with his analysis. We can talk about the sorrowfulness of the heart of Christ and his mind, like sorrow at human sin, and the consolation, wellsprings of consolation and peace and joy that come from his union with the Father. Okay, I'll end there, and I'll open the floor for questions with the proviso that there are no bad questions. Yeah. Well, Aquinas says that all the actions and sufferings of Christ in his human life convey salvation to us. I think those cases are nuanced because in some ways that act of communicating salvation is just to that person, but that's the kind of, you know, essential, like, distinct effect, the formal effect of that act. But because of the exemplary causality it suggests that what he's doing there, he wishes to do with others and will do for others. And the church retains, I think it's already in the kerygma of the composition of the New Testament. The church retold the story and preached the story and recorded the story as an expression of an exemplarism. That what Christ did for this wounded person or this, you know, this suffering person, he is doing for us. And not only physically, but spiritually. So that what he does in the body could signify what he will do in the soul, what he does in the soul could signify what he will do in the body. And so the exemplarism, it seems to me, is just a truth of the literary fact of the New Testament, the way they assembled the kerygma. Aquinas would talk about the ontological implications of that, that what Jesus did in the body and in his particular acts of his life are exemplars of what he intends to do after the resurrection through the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, through the sacraments. So, and also other, you know, the miraculous charismatic healings and other things, um, and in eternal life. So these are, this is where you get into the four senses of scripture, you know, the literal sense. He heals this person, but then it has a, because of the exemplarism, it has a typological sense, because it points forward to the church. But because it also even points forward to our recreation in eternity, it has a so-called anagogical sense. And so, you know, one of the problems is that we have gotten so, it's, We've gotten either an allergy to the literal sense or an obsession with the literal sense. So we either go say, well, the, the historical critical method is going to like upset my capacity of contact with the literal sense, or I can't use the historical critical method and get the literal sense and then not also see the spiritual senses. And what we have to do is analyze the historical mystery of Jesus with some historical critical learning, but fundamentally trusting as men and women of faith in the historical well-foundedness of the scriptures and have a nuanced, a modern, traditional and modern appreciation. The historical Jesus is who the New Testament says he was. They present it in their own way through a historical process. But the things he said and did are truly typologically indicative of our life now, Jesus and eschatologically indicative 
and of the life to come. And you need some kind of superior knowledge in Christ. Most theologians traditionally do hold for the immediate vision of God in the, in the intellect of Christ. But you need some kind of higher knowledge of Christ, unquestionably. So there's continuity between what he intended to do and how he intended that to signify what was to come. Like the church holds, for example, that we must hold that Jesus intended to found the church. You know, Loisy denied that in the 1910s. And so you know, the church holds as a truth of faith and a, a, re, a natural reason, a truth of natural reason to be defended by a historical probable argument that Jesus really founded the church. But that means he had superior knowledge. He didn't just found the church in the sheer darkness of faith by a hunch. He has a superior awareness of where this is all going. So we need to hold the, the superior knowledge is present so that all the actions and sufferings of Christ have a soteriological effect. Yeah. Some of the other saints have talked not only about the consolation that Christ receives uh, from the Father, knowing that he's, you know, uh, bringing victory over sin and redeeming us, but also the consolation that the saints themselves bring somehow through time yeah. bring to Christ. Yeah. Would you speak to that? Yeah, I do, I'm confused by that topic, and I think it's vexing. Uh, there's a very important encyclical whose name I forget, maybe one of you know, of Pius XI. Mm -hmm. But if you look at Pius XI's uh, encyclical on bringing consolation to the heart of Christ, he, he suggests that Jesus back then, Jesus is no longer suffering the agony of the garden or the agony of the cross, but that what Jesus suffered then took account, and the consolations he felt then, took account of the things we do now. So that now, if, for example, the sinner repents today, it's something that Jesus foresaw in his beatific vision and was consoled by then. And so every time we console the heart of Christ by, like, for example, doing a holy hour for the reparation of sin, which is what Pius XI is interested in, encouraging the church to do, we, making reparation for sins, we are fulfilling the heart of Christ as it was, as it were, already anticipated or what was taking place then. I think that at least doesn't have any metaphysical nonsense about it because um, you don't have to go talk about like a, a kind of time trap, God preserving the Garden of Gethsemane in eternity. Now that's a stronger view, which is that there's some way in which the suffering, crucified Christ is preserved by the divine eternity. I don't go down that road. But you can find people who present that view with some sophistication. The third option, it seems to me, is to say, the first one seems to me plausible although maybe somewhat mystifying, maybe it's true. The second one seems to me largely problematic, although many great people have held it. The third one is to say that there's a way in which we do console also the heart of Christ now in glory, because the heart of Christ can't suffer, but there is something like a beatified, maybe a beatified mourning. Pascal says Christ is in suffering until the end of the world. And that, that suggests there's a kind of, if that's true, which is disputable, that Christ is beatified in heaven, he's happy in a deep way. But there is a, a kind of knowledge he has as man of our sinfulness. And so what's depicted maybe somewhat metaphorically at La Salette with Mary crying is the, maybe something actually more beatific, which is beatific mourning. Sorrow for sin in the beatific heart of Christ in heaven. And we might be able to console him in that respect. Then there's just the fact that we would add, this is the obvious thing, we would add to the, the happiness of Christ, the glory and, and joy of Christ, in his effects, to see his creation being redeemed and sin being atoned for. And then, of course, we can also make a kind of congruent, meritorious offering of ourselves for the sins of others, and that rejoices the heart of Christ. So there's a lot of ways to go with that. You know, I'm just giving you different theological views from 
the more speculative to I think are the most certain. Yeah. The way to put it is that that sounds too Nestorian. Sometimes I'm accused of being Nestorian, sometimes I'm accused of being Monophysite. Aquinas is too. No, I think, well, he has a re, there's a real relationship between his humanity and his divinity. The real relationship between the Son, the, the Jesus as man and the, and the Father, is the personal relationship of the Son and the Father. The personal relationship of the Son and the Father informs the way he relates humanly to the Father. So he relates to the Father in his mind and heart as man, as an expression of his personal identity as the eternal son. And might say the son, in his human life, in his human consciousness, his human prayers, his human awareness, his human obedience, his human thought, his human suffering, always relates to the father as his eternal father. But the one who relates to the father is the eternal son as man, in his human life and suffering. Okay, so he's, he also, is aware that he, he doesn't have a relationship to himself, but he has, a, he has an intellectual awareness of the splendor of his own divinity. He's consoled by the presence of his own divinity. And he's a personally related to the Holy Spirit who proceeds from him, as the Holy Spirit who proceeds from him with the Father, and also who indwells in him as man, as the regent of his soul. There's a good book about all this by Dominic Legg, L-E-G-G-E, The Trinitarian Christology of Thomas Aquinas that explores some of this mystery. Yes, sister. Father, you spoke uh, that when Christ looks at the Father, he thinks, um, like, I and Father are one. I am what? I and the Father is one. Yeah. Only, you know? um, but when he looks at me, the humanity, he really feels the sorrow for uh, human sins, or what is that? When he sees the Father, he's... Father, he feels that I and Father, we are one. Yeah. Like, that union. Yeah. But when he looks at the humanity, what does he feel? Well, I mean, he has both joy and he has sorrow. Because he has joy or happiness because he sees that he's redeeming the human race. And he loves us. Uh, he loves us, he knows us, and he loves us. You might say, the good comes before the bad. The, you know, the primacy of the good over the primacy of evil. He loves us and he knows us and loves us as made in the image of God and as people he's dying for and, to, and is saving. He also sees our miseries and our limitations and he has a heart of mercy for us, but he also has to confront the gravity of human evil. You know, so there's, there's a kind of, a, there's a confrontation with what is sorrowful in that, in that event. All right, why don't I liberate you? But thank you so much for your questions and your attention. And uh, we'll, we can continue the conversation now.